Welcome to another episode of the Liberators Network podcast. I am Christian Verwijs, I'm one of the two Liberators together with Barry Overeem. In this episode, we're going to dig more into the science behind the Scrum Framework. Specifically, we're going to look at a cognitive perspective and explore how that helps us understand why the Scrum Framework is better suited for our human brains when it comes to dealing with complexity. But before we dive into the episode, I want to give a shout out to Tabata for joining us as a patron and helping support this show and the other content that we create. If you also like what we do, you can support us through Patreon. I'll leave a link in the description of the episode so you can explore if that's something you'd like to do. This episode is based on a scientific paper called Getting Things Done, The Science Behind Stress-Free Productivity. It was written by Heiligen and Vidal in 2007, and Gunter Verheyen was so kind to forward it to me in 2012, when I also wrote a blog post about this topic. Now, the scientific article discusses possible scientific explanations for the success of a personal productivity approach called Getting Things Done, developed by Ellen in 2001. The authors of the scientific paper apply insights from cognitive psychology and cybernetics to better understand why getting things done is so effective. Now, although getting things done is focused on individual time management and being effective as an individual, the authors mentioned the potential for collaborative work. Although the authors were un- unaware of Scrum at the time, their paper provides useful insights into why Scrum might be so effective when it comes to complex work. And their article inspired me to apply the same insights to Scrum and to extend it with some of my own. And for the sake of length and because most readers will be aware of Scrum, I would like to refer people that are unfamiliar with Scrum to go to scrum.org or check out one of the Scrum guides at scrumguides.org. What is complex work? Before diving deeper into this episode, it is helpful to have a working definition. A more detailed explanation can be found in a blog post we published called On Complexity, Why Your Software Project Needs Scrum. I'll put the link in the description of this episode. The short story is that work is complex when more is unknown than known. And this involves both how well you understand the problem that needs to be solved, as well as the steps involved to do so. The success of complex work often often depends on an unpredictable interaction between many different variables. And this applies on many levels. Developing a new product, very high level complex problem, requires understanding of the users, of the technologies involved, what makes something valuable or not, and many other things. Implementing a single feature in a product is often complex too, because it requires many assumptions about what the users like and understand, how to best use technology to make that feature feature possible, but also a lot of factors that are related to the skill level of the people building it. Although our brain is a marvel of evolution, it is not evolved to excel at the kind of knowledge work that happens in most modern day workplaces. Knowledge work is a concept that was initially coined by Thomas Davenport, a professor in information management. It's work that takes place mostly in our minds, like predicting scope, um, setting up planning, considering consequences of changes to complex systems, working out test cases, and estimating complexity. It involves activities like linking information, prioritizing, conceptualizing, and analyzing data, and just simply making sense of what's going on. 
And as it turns out, scientific research has shown us that our brains are really quite limited at being able to do this. And we'll explore some of these limitations in this episode. The first limitation is that of our working memory. A psychologist called Miller identified in 1965 that we have a cognitive limitation that inhibits our ability to comprehend complex problems. As it turns out, our mind is on average capable of maintaining seven objects in our working memory, plus or minus two. We can usually keep track of up to seven objects, these could be ideas, numbers, consequences, at the same time for up to 20 to 30 seconds. This is called Miller's Law. And the law is relevant because it imposes a cognitive limit to the amount of complexity we can keep in our working memory at any one time. There are definitely tricks, memory tricks, called mnemonics, that can extend that capacity somewhat, like chunking. But even then, our capacity is limited to about four chunks. Of course, that limitation impedes our ability to carefully consider all the variables that make work complex, because there are so many variables to keep in mind. This means that that complexity will affect how well we understand what's going on. The second limitation has everything to do with attention. Attention is the process of selectively concentrating on one aspect while ignoring others. It is a mental process and it is a limited mental resource. When performing difficult tasks, attention is required. And this implies that other tasks cannot be given attention. And as it turns out, and as you probably realize for yourself, we are not very good at multitasking at all. In fact, switching attention between two or more tasks tends to double the time needed for individual tasks and increases the number of errors. There's uh, some good research by Rogers and Monsell in 1995 that tells you more about that. So answering your email and writing code at the same time is going to decrease productiveness. Of course, this limitation impedes our ability to carefully consider all the options that make work complex, because a lot of attention to detail is required in this case, and this will affect every estimate and prediction we make. The third group of limitations has to do with our ability to make decisions. The limited capacity of our working memory and the limited resource of our attention are some of the reasons why most economists and psychologists consider our brains as generally not very good at making accurate decisions. Instead of basing our decisions on a full rational analysis of all the available data, we instead tend to make suboptimal choices. Our minds are bound by cognitive and other limitations. There's an interesting theory called bounded rationality by Herbert from 1975 that can tell you more about this. But in a practical sense, this is why we are not good at detailing scope for work up front. Consider consequences of changes and estimate the time it will take to complete tasks. And this might all be possible when our minds would work like a computer and has all the information available. But our brains have not evolved for that kind of work. Instead, our brains have evolved to make quick knee-jerk decisions based on the immediate environment. Instead of applying this full rational analysis, we use heuristics instead. And heuristics are simple rules. Examples are, what do other people think? What is my gut feeling for this? Or what do similar experiences tell me? Or what does someone that I hold in high regard do or tell me? 
In fact, we know that simple heuristics can actually lead to better, quicker decisions than theoretical optimal procedures, which was nicely shown by Gigerenzer in his research in 2002. And the fourth group of limitations has to do with how we think. Despite what you might think, humans are not great thinkers, emphasis on thinkers. Most of us find it very hard to concentrate on the train of thought necessary for continuous thought. Nevertheless, the motto of software development is often first solve the problem, then write the code. This implies an active thinking phase, which is subject to the limitations that we mentioned before. But there is another limitation, which is the thinking itself. Have you ever wondered why, when thinking, you find yourself scribbling notes down on a paper to help you think? According to cognitive psychologists, this is because our minds require interaction with a real environment to help it think. This is something called situated cognition, and there's more you can read about it in work by Clark from 1997. According to this theory, we think not by manipulating symbols in our minds, but by iteratively performing small actions in our environments, which in turn lead to new thoughts and actions. Simply speaking, the act of writing your thoughts down and perceiving them again helps us think and come up with new ideas. In this case, we use our environment as sort of an extended mind and offload a lot of the memorizing and the thinking to a more reliable and less energy-consuming external memory. This frees our limited minds to consider new actions and thoughts and, in a way, helps us work around some of the limitations that we have. There's actually a nice anecdote from the well-known Danish architect Björk Ingels that illustrates this point. He explains that when they design buildings in their company, they try to work with physical materials as quickly as possible. So rather than doing the whole design process on paper or with uh, computer models, instead they use 3D printing or cardboard or other materials that you can actually touch. And he explains that this is a way for people to actually get new ideas. So when they can hold something, when they can turn it around, touch it, that's where new ideas come from. And I think that really illustrates this point of situated cognition. So how to handle our limited brains? We have identified some important cognitive limitations of our brain. And despite its evolutionary marvel, our brains are not optimized for heavy-duty knowledge work. Even so, we still have to deal with complex problems. So what should we do? There are three things that come to mind. The first one is that we should optimize our work for heuristics. Because we are not fully capable of full rational analysis, we shouldn't try to analyze, predict, and plan everything up front. This is simply a futile endeavor. Instead, we should optimize our work for the rapid application of heuristics to arrive at quick decisions. It's better to hit the ground running and inspect frequently than spending valuable time trying to overthink everything. And from this follows the second point. We should work with a process that gives us continuous stream of feedback. Because we use heuristics, our process should be optimized to provide us with continuous feedback to evaluate the success and accuracy of those heuristics. This allows us to adapt, prevent mistakes quickly and apply new heuristics or improve existing ones. And finally, we should work in environments that encourage situated cognition by writing things down and by creating other ways to have an external memory around us to offload our limited brains. 
Together, these three considerations accommodate a process called self-organization, which is vital to the Scrum framework and to dealing with complexity. And this is where Stigmergy comes in. Feedback, Stigmergy and self-organization. In a sense, we often use our environment to leave traces to further our own thinking. This is where the cybernetic concept of feedback control is useful. Wikipedia defines feedback control as a process in which information about the past or the present influences the same phenomenon in the present or the future. In cybernetics, a feedback system is always trying to minimize the difference between a desired and an actual state. Consider a thermostat. If a thermostat is set to 21 degrees Celsius, it will begin heating the apartment when temperature falls below that temperature. It will periodically measure temperature and turn itself on or off when the intended temperature goes either too high or too low. And what does this have to do with offloading human thinking to our environment? Heiligen and Vidal in their paper argue that the feedback control loop that is prevalent in situated cognition helps us think about complex problems by constantly performing small actions and evaluating their results. You could see this as, an, as a way of trial and error. If we have not reached our intended goal, we will attempt further actions that will probably decrease the distance between the intended and the actual result. In other words, our thinking is one big feedback control loop where we perform actions in the world, evaluate them and determine our next action. Writing a blog post or recording a podcast is a good example of this. Instead of thinking up the whole post beforehand, which is quite complex, um, it's easier to write it in a few evenings. And you can use a text editor to write paragraph sections and jot down notes and reminders of how to link everything together. The act of writing actually triggers new ideas and thoughts on how to better write and what you actually want to say with a post. So just writing this post is an example of that. Stigmergy. So with our situated cognition, we recognize that thinking is not something that takes place in our minds exclusively. Instead, we include our environment as external memory and to aid our thinking. In the terminology of cognitive psychologists, we leave traces in our environment that we or others can pick up on to stimulate next actions. A powerful example of the above can be witnessed in termite colonies and some research by Kamezine in 2003 is a good starting point for this. Although individual termites have very limited cognitive abilities, the behavior of the termite colony as a whole appears to be quite intelligent. Together, termites construct complicated nests with arched corridors and a variety of specialized rooms. Termites achieve this by leaving small traces of pheromones for other termites. In turn, this stimulates these other termites to perform the next actions that are needed. This is, a, this is a form of swarm intelligence. Although individual agents have limited abilities, the simple act of following a simple set of local rules allows them to solve very complicated problems together, without having strong top-down or even rational control. Stigmergy can also be witnessed in human organizations. Good examples are Wikipedia and open source projects, as Heiligen calls in his paper in 2007. The individual agents perform small tasks and leave traces, that could be commits, ideas, bug reports, that are then picked up by other agents. Together they are capable of building free encyclopedias, 
entire kernels or frameworks that are that are created by the community, not by companies. All examples of very complex work. And again, this is achieved without a strong top-down control, stru control structure. Of course, the quality of the traces left behind by individual agents predicts the quality of the next actions. It also predicts the quality of the stigma-g as a whole. Within the context of writing the blog post that this episode is based on, the quality of my notes determines if I will pick up on them later or if I will simply ignore them. Maybe I fail to capture a novel idea in a note by writing it too short or too, too cryptic, which probably means I will fail to see the point again in the f when I read it again in the future and decide to skip it. A trace is considered of quality when it is actionable. This means that the trace is specific enough to basically necessitate the next action, and that makes it a stigmergic action. So again, in the context of writing a blog post, a good trace would be write conclusion by tying together insights with Scrum instead of simply finish post. Only the first specifies what I have to write about. A stigmergic action is so self-explanatory that another agent can pick it up and execute it, resulting in potential new stigmergic actions. So how does this all apply to Scrum and Agile? The Scrum framework presents a very different paradigm for managing complex work. Instead of top-down control through planning and upfront designs, Scrum allows control through self-organization and frequent feedback control loops. When a Scrum team starts work on a sprint, they usually begin by selecting work from the product backlog that is necessary to achieve the goal for that sprint. Instead of a full rational analysis of the required work, Scrum teams capture the essence of the work in short product backlog items on an order product backlog. Instead of using the product backlog as a form of documentation and knowledge transfer, it is instead used to facilitate communication and stigma G within the Scrum team during the sprint. As such, it can be considered an external memory that contains traces that aid a scrum team in their thinking process, but not, does not attempt to replace it. How much work can be done in the sprint is uncertain and unpredictable. Rather than using detailed rational analyses, teams instead rely on rough indicators like story points, other forms of relative estimation, or simply gut feeling. This is an intentionally heuristical approach to allow teams to quickly discuss and select work to populate a sprint backlog. The only way to learn about what is actually needed is by doing the work. Although this admitted, is admittedly rough and imprecise, sprints allow many opportunities for teams to evaluate their progress and adjust as needed. This is a good example of the feedback control loop that's in the Scrum framework. During the sprint, Scrum teams communicate progress and synchronize their work through the sprint backlog, which is often visualized on a Scrum board. It contains all the items that are needed to achieve the goal of the sprint. Because the items are simple, usually just one or two sentences, and with only a few details like acceptance criteria or specific examples, they can all be considered actionable traces. In a sense, the sprint backlog represents the external memory of a team during the sprint. It also helps the team think about what next to do. The simple act of pulling items through the workflow of to do, in progress, test and done, or whatever you use, causes new actions to be initiated. If someone pulls an item to done, or at least that the code is ready, then someone else can pick up that testing is necessary for this. 
or if an item is too big, it can be broken up into smaller tasks. The sprint backlog is also a locus of stigmergy. As members leave traces of their work, new items or changes in status, other members can pick up on those traces. In effective scrum teams, members simply look at the board and pick up the tasks that are suitable for them, instead of someone assigning the items to them. This is a good example of self-organization and stigmergy. Teams distribute their own work and, through the synchronized actions of individuals, complex problems are solved in steps. This also gives credibility to the idea of using physical boards instead of hiding the external brain in a tool like Jira. During the sprint, the scrum team also periodically evaluates its progress. They do this at the end of the sprint, during the sprint review and the sprint retrospective, and every day during the daily scrum. These moments serve as important feedback control loops. Because there is no top-down control and no detailed plan, teams constantly evaluate the progress together. This allows them to safely experiment with new functionality and determine if the end goal is still reachable or if adjustments need to be made. The biggest difference with traditional approaches like plan-based, waterfall-based approaches is that the Scrum framework implements a process that allows a team to think by sprinting instead of thinking up front. This offloads a lot of thinking and memory capacity to the process itself. The sprints, the product backlog, the sprint backlog all act as aids in the situated cognition of the team. This in-process thinking stimulates the creation of a team mind that allows the sharing of knowledge instead of using big design documents that attempt but ultimately fail to achieve the same goal. As such, the stigmergy that is apparent in Scrum's iterative approach is a more effective means to manage complexity. Instead of trying to comprehend everything up front, teams continuously reorganize, learn, think and adapt to get the work done and improve their process. As such, the Scrum framework is a much better fit for our limited cognitive capabilities when it comes to comprehending and managing complexity. So let's move to some closing words. In this episode, I applied insights from cognitive psychology, cybernetics and human factors to explain why the Scrum framework is a more effective approach to dealing with complexity compared to traditional approaches. The bottom line is that our cognitive capabilities are limited. We are unable to fully comprehend the full complexity of complex work. Our brains simply have not evolved to do so. The Scrum framework provides a more useful alternative because it supports our cognitive limitations. It promotes the use of heuristics to make quick decisions, but it also implements strong feedback control loops to inspect and adapt the process and correct deviations as they happen. By following a few simple rules, the Scrum framework allows for self-organization or stigmergy to happen in teams. Self-organization is apparent all around us, from termite colonies to Wikipedia and open source projects. It shows us that alternative, more natural ways of working in the face of complexity are possible, and the Scrum framework is a good example of this. And that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you liked the episode and I hope you learned something new about the Scrum framework and especially about why it works well and what reasons we should have for making use of it. If you like this episode, please give it a thumbs up or a star on whatever platform you're listening on and obviously recommend it to other people. 
If you like our work and want to support us in finding more time to create even more podcasts, blog posts, and videos, you can support us through patreon.com or by going through one of our public events or by buying something from our web shop. I will make sure to put links in the description of the episode so you explore if there's a way that you like to support us. Other than that, I really want to thank you for listening and for taking time out of a busy day to learn something new. And we hope to see you again for our next episode. Thanks for listening and have a great day.